I'll take anal bum cover for seven thousand. <laughs> friends and uh, welcome to autobiography of a schnook uh, thank you for downloading streaming however you're listening i thank you and uh, this is sean and what more can i say i'm a schnook as i'm recording this it's uh, october 30th 2020 pandemic going on big time numbers are rising unfortunately the crazy thing is where i live the numbers were as low as two percent infection rate back in the summer then for a while, it went up to 4%. Now it's going over 6%. It's kind of scary. Well, I don't know if I want to say scary. Just kind of upsetting that things are going up instead of down. But uh, I don't know. We'll figure out how to get through it. We'll figure it out. Over the pandemic, over the last seven months, one thing that I was turned on to is uh, that TV show, Parks and Recreation. My wife started watching it. And, uh, well, Lisa kind of got me into it as well. I gotta say this, those of you who watch the show, April Ludgate is everything that I wish I could be. Ron Swanson, he's my spirit animal. But having said that, this time of year, for the last few years, it's kind of made me have this weird feeling in my gut, and I think it's because four years ago, the Chicago Cubs did the unthinkable, and they made it to the World Series for the first time since 1945. And of course, the common lore is that it was the curse of the Billy Goats. The story is that Billy Cianus, or is it Cianus? I'm going to say Cianus just to assume that uh, his name did not have the English language vowel shift. But as an advertising stunt, the story goes that he brought his Billy Goat named Murphy to a Cubs World Series game at Wrigley Field. But people complained about the smell, so he was forced to tie up the goat outside, or else he wouldn't be allowed back in. Well, he was ticked off about that, so he put a curse on the team, saying that the Cubs would never win the World Series again. Oh, what was the advertising stunt, by the way? It was to advertise Billy Sianis's Billy Goat Tavern, which, by the way, is located in the basement of the building next door to where my workplace would be if it weren't in the middle of a pandemic. But that's beside the point. Um, a lot of people wonder, well, what was the curse? Was it that the Cubs wouldn't go to the World Series, or was it that the Cubs wouldn't win the World Series? And I think I can definitively answer that. It is that the Cubs would not win the World Series. And the reason I say that is because every year, the Billy Goat Tavern publishes a calendar. The old-fashioned paper kind of calendar. And on the entry for, I think it was November 1st? Hold on a sec. It was November 2nd. November 2nd. Game 7 of the World Series against the Cleveland Indians. But anyway, the Billy Goat calendar marks November 2nd as, and I quote, curse broken. So, there it was. If it had been just that they had gone to the World Series, that curse broken date would have been much sooner. And why am I mentioning this? Well, again, because this time of year kind of reminds me of that. I'm not a baseball fan at all. But when a Chicago team is in the championship, good grief, you cannot help but get wrapped up in it if you live in the city of Chicago. You just can't. 
unless you're a White Sox fan, apparently. White Sox fans didn't care. They'd rather the Cubs lose than have the city claim a championship, apparently. It was not the other way around in 2005. But regardless, that was a great day. I remember I went uh, the next day for my lunch break. I knew that I had to go to the Billy Goat. So I went to the Billy Goat Tavern, and it was crowded. It was jam-packed. I got the last seat. And at some point when I was eating my lunch, I heard the crowd just very loudly erupt in cheers or something. And I was thinking, what happened? Did Bill Murray walk in or something? But no, somebody brought a goat inside. (laughs) But having said that, tying that back to the Parks and Rec thing, those of you who don't watch Parks and Rec, the last season of Parks and Recreation actually takes place in what was then the future. I think they... Uh, shot the last season in 2012 or 2013, but most of the last season takes place in 2017. And there is one scene when some of the characters were in Chicago, actually across the street from where I work, and they were talking about how the Cubs had won the World Series recently. Well, apparently, that was not a joke. That was meant to be dead serious. The reason for that is because writer Michael Schur is a massive baseball fan. And he studies MLB like crazy. He said it was a no-brainer that the Cubs were about to win the World Series soon because Theo Epstein had just moved in and he saw what Theo Epstein did with the Red Sox and the Red Sox are his favorite team. (laughs) So Michael Schur knew exactly what was going to happen. He said it was crystal clear that it was bound to happen. It wasn't a matter of if, but when. So that was pretty interesting there. But other than that, I I guess I've been okay. I've been continuing my life as a schnook. And speaking of my workplace, there's one other thing that happened that was kind of freaky. It's that uh, where I work, I'm a website developer. I'm a software engineer working on a website. Uh, Our website basically sells stuff. And uh, something that you learn when you're a website developer and there's a pandemic and you are told to stay home is that people like to order stuff when they're stuck at home. And so... Our business has actually been really improving, unfortunately, I have to say. I have to say for the reason that it's improving is unfortunate, but the fact that it's improving is fortunate. But they still had to do some layoffs due to some uh, unrelated issues, and they warned us about that. They said, okay, uh, we're going to let you know on such and such a date whether or not you still have a job. So I was living in stress for several days, as were some of my colleagues. Well, most of my colleagues And uh, the day came, and basically they said, if you don't hear from us by such and such a time, it means your job is safe. And turns out my job was safe, thank God. And just all that just made me think, I should kind of explain what I do for a living, how it happens, and along the way, kind of explain why, when you're on certain websites, or even using certain pieces of software, that things happen that make you wonder, well, why can't it be this way? Or why does it have to be this complicated? Well, listen on, my friends, and uh, hopefully this will be enlightening, if not at least not unentertaining. I mentioned in the previous episode that I had a Commodore 64 from 1988 to 1993. Just about anybody who had an 8-bit computer back in the 80s would likely have dabbled in a bit of basic programming, beginner's all-purpose symbolic instruction code, BASIC. You'd almost have to know a little bit of BASIC to operate your computer back then. 
Even before I had my Commodore, I futzed around with BASIC on the TI-99-4A that was in the classroom where I went to school, or on one of the Apple II models in the school library. When my brother got his Atari 65XE in 1986, I'd try some programming on that, typing programs in from books and magazines, essentially. I wasn't creative enough to come up with my own programs. But I knew what it meant to peek, to poke, uh, that a variable with a dollar sign was a string and a variable without a dollar sign was a number, rem statements were comments that didn't actually get executed, all that stuff. I took a basic programming course in high school and aced it. In college as a computer science major, before I switched to journalism, I learned Fortran and C. Years later, when I lived in New Jersey, I took some courses at Brookdale Community College, where I learned C++, Visual Basic, JSP, Java, SQL, and JavaScript. That was between 2001 and 2004, by the way. At the time, PHP was the hot new thing in website programming. JSP, which I just mentioned, was a server-side programming language for the web, and that was the focus of my server-side programming class. JavaScript, by the way, is client-side, meaning that it actually runs in your web browser, so obviously that was the focus of my client-side programming class. But in the server-side class, we had finished with JSP on the second-to-last day, so for the last day of the class, the instructor took a vote for what language we'd cover on the last day. And because it was the new rage, we all unanimously agreed that we wanted to get a look at PHP. So, for the last night of class, the instructor gave us an overview on ASP.NET, a web programming platform from Microsoft. We were ticked. PHP was the hot thing, and that's what we wanted to cover. Also, PHP is free. ASP.NET sure as heck isn't free. But man, I was mad. I got so angry that I went to Barnes & Noble and bought PHP Pocket Reference by O'Reilly Media and uh, taught myself PHP. I dropped out of Brookdale in 2004 when I landed a full-time job after not having one for three years. Yeah, that was fun, quitting my job in 2001, then the market tanking, and then September 11th happening, and then the market tanking again. But little did I realize, I had enough credits to get an associate's degree in webmaster administration. I found that out when Brookdale mailed me a diploma just out of the blue. It was weird. I dropped out of school, and they sent me a degree. I keep a copy of that degree in a fish frame because I just thought the whole situation was bizarre. By that time, though, I had dabbled in some sort of web programming for years. I first got on the internet in 1992 by way of a local bulletin board system, or BBS. That internet access wasn't really much, just email and a handful of Usenet news groups, but I was able to stay in touch with my friends from high school thanks to that limited internet access. Our college didn't get access to the internet until 1994, though, and at that point, it was pretty much just text-only, no web access. We would access internet-based anonymous FTP servers, file transfer protocol. The University of Washington at St. Louis had a popular FTP server, what with its collection of song lyrics, and of course it had a uh, AmyNet distribution directory, which was good for me because AmyNet was a major Amiga software repository, so I used that all the time. If we weren't using FTP, if we weren't using anonymous FTP servers, we would access information by use of a tool called Gopher. We could also connect to other systems like internet-based BBSs and online games via a Telnet prompt. 
I found an online service called PrairieNet, hosted by the University of Illinois. Or was it Illinois State? Hmm, don't remember. I think it was University of Illinois. But whoever hosted it, Illinois residents could Telnet to PrairieNet and get a free account that included email access and access to various internet-based services such as Usenet news groups and the World Wide Web. And because you had to Telnet to the service, and it was entirely menu-driven, you couldn't use Mosaic and Netscape, remember those browsers? But you had to use a text-based browser called Lynx, L-Y-N-X. You would tab to all the links, and to click on the links, you'd hit the space bar. No, actually, no, you'd hit the return key. You'd hit the space bar to read more text, I think. On top of all that, PrairieNet gave its users space to develop their own websites. They gave users a whopping one megabyte. Say it with me now. Ooh. For those of you who don't know what megabyte means, really, uh, think of this. If you get a computer now, you'll probably get somewhere in the neighborhood of a terabyte of hard drive space, or at least 500 gigabytes. A terabyte is a thousand gigabytes. A gigabyte is a thousand megabytes. Basically, a megabyte is just slightly larger than what a standard three and a half inch floppy disk could carry. But I decided I should try this new World Wide Web thing. I'd be among the elite few who dared join the world of website creation. Of course, given that I couldn't browse the web on a graphical browser, I had to limit myself to making a text-only website. I mean, after all, how could I design a site that had pictures on it if I didn't know how the site would look because I didn't have access to a graphical browser? Also, with only a megabyte of space to work with, I didn't really have room on my account to have pictures, so yeah, it would have to be text-only, and I would have to make sure it was very informative. When you decide to make a website, you really have to think about what is already out there. Back in 1994, there wasn't much. The internet was still in its infancy in terms of how much of the general public had access to it. Basically, if you weren't a college student or you didn't work at a company that had a lot of telecommunications as its business, you very likely didn't have access to the internet. And even if you did, you might not have access to the World Wide Web. As I've mentioned repeatedly on this podcast, my favorite band is the Beatles, and they have been since 1987. So naturally, my first thought was to do some kind of a Beatles website. Well, there already were several Beatles websites out there, so I had to think of an approach that hadn't been done yet. As far as I could tell, there weren't any websites that really talked about Beatles bootlegs, and given that I was really starting to get into bootleg collecting, I decided my website was going to contain reviews of Beatles bootlegs. When I'd get a new bootleg Beatles CD or acquire something in a tape trade, I'd review it based on how interesting the content and sound quality were. Back in those days, you could go to Beetlefest, and if someone said, well, I have a website, you could say, oh, really? Which one? And you would know that site. As the internet and the World Wide Web became more accessible, of course, more websites popped up, as you are probably well aware. So I started my Beatles bootleg review site. I typed up a front page, published it, and sat in slack-jawed confusion as I saw that all of my formatting was stripped away and the entire page was crammed into a single paragraph. <sighs> That's weird. I know I started a new paragraph here. This, my friends, was before I knew that there was such a thing as HTML, or hypertext markup language. 
There was a web design support forum on PrairieNet, so I posted there and asked why my page was crammed into one paragraph. That's when I learned about HTML tags. I found out that you have to open your web document with a angle-bracketed tag that had the letters HTML in it, and the main text goes into a similar tag that says body. If you want the browser to render a carriage return, you use a BR tag, and if you want to start a new paragraph, use the P tag. To learn more about HTML, I'd alternate between posting on that help forum and viewing the source code on other websites, once I learned it was possible to view the source code on a website. Eventually, I had learned enough HTML to make a passable website, and I really enjoyed doing it. I think it was 1999 when I started to try to get a job in making websites, but no dice. My interviews would always go something like this. But you don't have any experience. Uh, yes, I do. Here are the URLs. Yeah, but you never got paid to do that. Well, then hire me and I will get paid to do that. But nah, nope. Over the years, I did work on a couple of websites for small businesses as kind of a freelance thing. One customer I had ran a building contracting firm at the Jersey Shore, another was a handyman on the northwest side of Chicago, but even then, even though they paid me to fix their websites and make them up to date, that still didn't help. At this point, the interviews went something like this. You don't have experience. Yes, I do. Here are the URLs. Those are just your personal sites, though. You didn't actually get paid to do those. No, no, but here are a couple that I did get paid to do. Well, yes, but those were just freelance sites. That wasn't your full-time job. Between 2004 and 2006, when I worked for a major test prep company in the department that staffed instructors, I built a PHP-based website that made staffing pretty dang easy. I'm dropping all humility here, and I'm going to say that people freaking loved that site. I got praised all the time for it. Hey, I, it's, it's the truth, okay? It's, it's the truth. They liked it. They liked it a lot. But even that wouldn't help get my foot in any development doors. But skip ahead to 2011. I was working a dead-end job that I couldn't stand. In fact, when I got laid off from that job, I was actually happy about it. But when I was working there, I decided to go to grad school and study software engineering so I actually could have some kind of career direction and do something that involved writing code, maybe. I enrolled at DePaul University and I studied Java, iOS development, C-sharp, project management, quality assurance and testing, data structures, object-oriented modeling, and, well, I'm boring myself talking about this. But after I got laid off from that crappy job in 2012, I tried again to get a web development job. Actually, recruiters had already started calling me by that time, but they weren't really able to get me anywhere. The recruiters would tell me about dozens of clients they had who were looking for developers, but I seldom was able to get so much as a phone screening. So, when I was between jobs, I talked to one of the recruiters and I asked why I wasn't getting anywhere. He looked at my resume and said, well, here's your problem, it's your resume. This doesn't look like a developer's resume. He told me that my previous jobs didn't make it clear that I had any kind of development experience, so he had me tweak the resume so that each of the websites I worked on was actually listed as a separate job. Suddenly, I was getting a lot more bites, including from Client Q, whom I mentioned in the previous episode, by the way. They hired me. Now, after I started working for Client Q, it didn't really take me very long to learn that developing websites with an entire team of developers is nothing like working entirely on your own doing personal websites and working freelance with small business owners. 
there's so much ceremony, formality, and in some cases, legality that you got to follow. But it is pretty eye-opening, though, and I'll share with you some of the things that I've learned that really explain why certain things happen on websites, and my experience in general, really. The way web development works, at least at my job, is pretty darn structured. We use an electronic ticketing system. Each ticket has a specific thing that needs to be done to a website. One ticket might ask for adding a feature to the site that allows you to log in via your Facebook account. Another ticket might be to correct a bug that causes a button to no longer be clickable. Developers are assigned tickets that are to be completed within what's called a development sprint, which is a period of time that development is done for a particular release. Typically, our releases are done once every two weeks. Developers keep a local copy of their website on their computers, and that's how they develop and test their code changes. At least where I work, developers are given laptops to use for development, and uh, they're set up to reflect the web servers as closely as possible. We have administrative rights to those laptops, so we can download and install whatever software we need in order to get the job done. While there are a few programmers in the world who use just basic text editors like Notepad to write their code, most developers use what we call an Integrated Development Environment, or IDE. Uh, for those of you who don't know what IDEs are, um, an IDE is basically a supercharged, fancy text editor, and it's designed to specifically make writing software as easy as possible. Where I work, most of us use an IDE called PHP Storm, and it's so-called PHP Storm because it specializes in PHP. If I start typing some PHP code, PHP Storm will detect it and autocomplete commands that I'm typing, and basically makes my work a lot easier. It cuts down on my typing. It helps auto-format the code for easy readability. Now, that's not just with PHP Storm. That's pretty standard for any IDE out there. Interestingly, when I first started at the company, I was using NetBeans, and uh, that is the IDE that I used on my own for personal projects. In fact, pretty much all the developers used NetBeans when I started. When I was hired, I was told that I could use any IDE I wanted to do my development, but if I wanted support from everybody on the team, I'd better be using NetBeans or else they wouldn't be able to help. So NetBeans it was. No problem. I liked it and I used it. No problem, I used it regularly at home anyway, and I really liked it. But then eventually, suddenly, people were starting to use PHP Storm instead. One of my coworkers even said, why are you using NetBeans? I said, because you folks told me when I was hired to use NetBeans. To be quite honest with you, the only difference I see between NetBeans and PHP Storm is that NetBeans is free, and PHP Storm costs about 100 bucks. But anyway, once the developer is confident that his or her work for a ticket is done, the developer wrote the new code, tested the new code, says, okay, this looks good, the bug's been fixed, the feature's been added, whatever the case, then that developer will send that code change over to another developer who does what we call a code review, which really a code review in the development world is simply proofreading the code. Whomever you pass the code on to do a review will simply look at the code, make sure there are no syntax errors so that it doesn't blow up the website or anything. And some of the more careful developers will actually go line by line in the code and make sure that it actually does what it's supposed to do and doesn't run the risk of breaking other functionality. If there are any syntax errors or if the code reviewer believes that the new code might interfere with some existing functionality, then that reviewer will raise any concerns with the original developer and sometimes would offer ways to make the code a little bit better. But otherwise, the code reviewer will approve the code and pass it on to the QA, 
or a quality assurance department who will then run some vigorous tests and make sure that the code does indeed work. If the code doesn't work, then the QA rep testing it will kick the ticket back to the developer who will then code a fix for that particular ticket, and then that code review process starts all over again. If the QA rep passes the ticket, then it gets tested once again in a staging environment, and a staging environment is basically the closest you could get to having the website out in public for the world to see without it actually being out in public, so that way it can simulate everything possible. And once that code gets into staging, QA tests it all over again in that environment, and if it passes staging, then it is marked as ready for production. And once it's released to production on release day, then the QA department tests it on the live website and just verifies that everything works fine. If it doesn't work fine, then QA department will either create a defect if it's something that's not a showstopper, or if it's a really major problem, then we might actually revert the code and try the release later after the uh, code is fixed. So that's pretty much how it works in a very vague nutshell. Now, when we do our bi-weekly releases, it's usually at 6.30 in the morning in the middle of the week. Never on Mondays, never on Fridays. We avoid Mondays and Fridays because we don't want it to be too close to the weekend. And the reason that we do releases early in the morning is because that's when very few people tend to use our website. Therefore, if the release causes any weird behavior, then it'll affect very few people. And when we do a release, there's a lot that goes into it. Not only do the developers and QA reps have to test the code, but the infrastructure team also has to make sure that the servers and the hardware and everything is ready to go. And what's cool about our release process, and this is pretty typical from what I understand, is that it's set up so that nobody can really point fingers at anybody. If it turns out that a release introduces a problem into the website, well, you could theoretically point at the developer and say, look what you did to the website, you broke it. Well, then that developer could point to the code reviewer and say, hey, you reviewed that code, why did you pass it? And then you could say, well, why didn't they catch this in the QA process? Why wasn't it caught in staging? So there are just so many levels of responsibility that everybody has to have everybody's back. Now, as for what you may see happening on your favorite websites or not so favorite websites, I'll just kind of address a few things you might notice. Uh, for example, let's say that you spot a spelling error on a website. You fill out the contact form on the website and you inform the website's administrator or customer service rep or whomever that, or what, no, I think it'd be whoever in that case. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, you inform that person, hey, I found a typo on your website. You spelled cat K-A-T, but it should be C-A-T. You might submit that and then three weeks later, you might still see that cat is misspelled on the website. Well, here's the thing. It might be that some spelling errors aren't considered high priority and ergo are not worth rushing to hurry up and fix. I'll tell you this though, sometimes if I'm working on code and I notice that there's a word misspelled on the website, I might sneak in a correction and uh, usually when I do, I will let people above me know about that so that it's documented. Then there comes a situation in which there is a spelling error in some text that has to be approved by the legal department. Yep, if there is a misspelling in legal text, you cannot fix it until you run it past the legal team because, hey, it's called legal for a reason. You don't want to make any changes to that without them knowing it, so they have to approve it. And I'll tell you what's worse than a spelling error appearing on a website. A spelling error in the source code. Yeah, the world's not going to see it, but the developers are. Lots of developers just 
can't spell. I can. <laughs> I particularly remember looking for a variable that holds a reference to something that we call an occasion. Now, if you believe in making readable code, and you should as a good developer, you will make a variable name something clear and meaningful. If you want a variable to hold a value that corresponds to an occasion, you don't want to call that variable simply X or Flurzelquirp. You might want to call it occasion. So one day when I was looking for, uh, I think it was a, a problem with uh, the website recognizing what occasion it is, I did a search for the word occasion in the source code in the file that would have had it. And you know what? I couldn't find it. Turns out the reason I couldn't find it is because whoever wrote the original code spelled occasion O-C-C-A-T-I-O-N. And then when you see that, you think, hmm, I should spell that variable correctly. But then you don't want to do that because you got to make sure that every single occurrence of the word occasion, you change that T to an S. And not only that, but there might be other code somewhere else that knows that it's misspelled and is specifically looking for O-C-C-A-T-I-O-N. So if you refactor the code to look for O-C-C-A-S-I-O-N, you might actually be breaking some functionality. So spelling errors in source code is just really a pain in the butt. But really, though, an astonishing amount of planning goes on with websites. Every day, our teams have 15-minute stand-up meetings. They're so-called stand-up meetings because they're supposed to be short enough that you will not need to sit down. You're not supposed to be given an opportunity to be physically comfortable. That's what keeps the meetings short. In these stand-ups, we talk about what tickets we're working on, if any, and if we have any issues or blockers preventing us from completing our work. Twice a week, we have a grooming session, which is a one-hour meeting in which the team talks about upcoming work and discusses tickets for the next sprint and maybe prioritizes the work. Developers will estimate how long it'll take to complete those tickets, and if we determine that a ticket might be asking for something impossible, we kick it back to whoever made the initial request and explain why it's impossible. After a release happens, we have a retrospective meeting. We talked about what went right during that sprint, what went wrong during that sprint, what we wish we would have done during that sprint that we should do in future sprints, etc. And something that comes into play during website development, I kind of touched upon this already. Legalities. Not just privacy policies and other disclaimers, but general functionality. If your website, for example, is a food ordering site, then your site is required by federal law to include a calorie count on every item on the menu. Well, at least in the U.S., if your website handles money transactions and you are required to have certain security measures in place. Case in point, if you ever get frustrated with your bank's website because of how complex your password needs to be, well, don't get ticked off at the bank. Get ticked off at those who made it law that passwords have to be of certain levels of complexity. And really, now that I think about it, don't get ticked off at all. Complex passwords are there to help you. You don't want someone to be able to guess your password. You don't want to use any words that you can find in a dictionary. You don't want to use your birthday, names of family members, your dog's name, your license plate, your phone number. Nothing that anybody can guess or socially engineer out of you. And don't use QWERTY or 123456 either. And especially don't use password as your password. If you do, you deserve your account to be compromised. And for the love of God, do not 
post your password where someone can see it. IT security professionals have literally gotten rich because of people who put passwords on sticky notes on their desks. Uh, that is, uh, rich because people who do that stuff ensure that IT security professionals stay employed. <laughs> the law may also dictate that a website force you to change your password after a certain amount of time. Oh, and if you're asked for your birth date when you create an account at a website, it's not there to gather personal information about you. It's there as a way to check and see if that website can legally contain any of your personal information, even if it's just your name and email address. There is a law called COPPA, or Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, that says that you cannot store any personal information about a customer unless that customer is at least 13 years old. In some states, they have a law that says 16. So that's why they're asking you for a birth date, just so they can say, well, here's proof that we at least try to make sure that the customer is old enough. Another thing that you might have noticed, have you ever unsubscribed from an email list of some sort and got a message telling you it could take a certain amount of time before you're actually unsubscribed? Might be 48 hours, might be a week. Well, there's a reason that that happens instead of just being unsubscribed instantly. Subscriptions for things like deals, for coupons, for weekly sales alerts, they're often managed by a third party. If you've ever seen or heard an advertisement for Salesforce or Constant Contact, guess what? That's exactly what they do. Those are companies that a lot of people outsource to handle their marketing emails. You might be signed up to receive an email every time that, say, I don't know, Target is about to have a big sale. But that doesn't mean the Target actually controls those emails. Target might actually be outsourcing those emails to a company like Constant Contact or Salesforce. Let's say that a customer wants to unsubscribe from those emails. Usually what happens is, well, I'm just going to use Target as a theoretical example. I don't know if they actually do it this way. This is just kind of a theoretical guess. A customer might decide, I don't want to get those emails anymore. My inbox is jammed as it is. So the customer logs on to Target.com, goes into the user preferences, and unchecks a box that says subscribe me from alerts. Upon unsubscribing, the customer gets a confirmation email that says, we're sorry you didn't find these emails helpful. You will be unsubscribed within 48 to 72 hours. Even though Target might actually use, uh, let's just say, Acme email marketing service to handle emails, the farewell email you just received was likely triggered by Target itself. Now, you would think that unsubscribing might cause the code on the Target website to send a note to Acme Email Marketing to take you off the mailing list. But here's the problem with that. The Target website would have to send that note to Acme Marketing that says, hey, drop this customer from the list, and then wait for a confirmation from Acme. Acme would have to update its database to make sure that the customer is no longer contacted, and then Acme would have to go back to Target and say, okay, here's your confirmation, this customer is no longer going to get emails. And then the Target site comes back to you and says, okay, you're now unsubscribed. Again, Acme is a theoretical third-party marketing service, which means that Target's system has to communicate outside of its own network. And going outside of a network and then waiting for a response from a third party is going to cause some lag. Uh, we tech nerds call it latency. Every time a user does that, there is latency, and that could cause a general slowdown overall. You also got to keep in mind that Acme Marketing probably handles email marketing for dozens, possibly hundreds or thousands of companies, and they have that much of a workload to deal with. 
So what likely happens when you unsubscribe from Target's theoretical marketing emails is that Target puts your information on a list. Instead of tying up Target's own system and Acme's system by unsubscribing customers individually every single time a customer clicks unsubscribe or even decides, well, I want to change my email, so update my subscription, what Target will probably do is just every couple of days send a list of people who want to unsubscribe. That's just one call to Acme Marketing every couple of days, usually during a time of day when the website isn't terribly busy, like say 6.30 in the morning. That causes a lot less strain on servers and ergo less latency than making a call out to Acme every single time somebody makes a change. So next time you're wondering why I can't just instantly unsubscribe, well, that's why. Now, weirdly frequently when I tell people what I do for a living, they seem surprised that there's enough work to keep me busy. They're often under the impression that once a website goes up, that's it, you're done. Well, that's not the case at all. For one thing, no matter how solid a website is, or really any other product done by software engineering, there's always going to be a bug. You can never assume that a piece of software is bug-free. When there are bugs, we determine how serious the bugs are and we prioritize them thusly. Spelling errors, as I mentioned before, are usually not considered extremely serious because they usually don't affect functionality. What is considered critical, though, is if a customer cannot create an account or place an order. So yeah, if we find out that someone can't create an account or that someone can't order the product that he or she wants, we have to drop everything and fix that sucker ASAP and do what's called a hot fix, which is basically an emergency release, rather than wait for the next release date. Also, features are added to websites all the time. And just when you have all the features in place and you're pretty sure there aren't any more bugs left on the site and you think it's smooth sailing ahead, suddenly you find out from your customer that they want a brand new design on the site. And here's the sad truth, folks. If you find out that a site that you use frequently is changing its design and you have the option to keep the old design for a while, like it or not, that old one is going away in favor of the new site at some point, period. There's nothing you can do about it. At that point, all decisions have been final. What determines when a website is going to change its design, and how? Well, a lot of things. For one thing, trends. How people start to use websites, for example. How people's website habits change. Case in point, when smartphones came into vogue, you better believe most major websites did a huge overhaul so that their sites would be usable on both desktop computers and phones especially in Japan, where for years and years and years, web browsing has been done mostly over the phone. Also, a lot of design and programming standards change, and in order to get a website up to those standards, sometimes it means you actually literally do have to redesign it from the bottom up. Some of those changes might actually be dictated by law, and if those changes aren't made to keep up with certain security and accessibility standards, the company in charge of the site could be faced with a nasty fine. Or the site's design might change simply because its current design is getting stale. If that's the case, then what a company might do is actually put up multiple versions of its website and route different users to different versions. These different sites will use different tools like Google Analytics to get a feel for how people are using the site, how long it takes people to complete certain tasks, or if the percentage of finished purchases drops or increases. And believe it or not, 
customer feedback actually comes into play too. If there's a pattern of users complaining about how long it takes to say, I don't know, add a toaster to their cart, then that particular thing is going to be addressed in a future redesign. So yeah, those of you who are complaining about Facebook's new layout, uh, not enough of you spoke up to the right people. <laughs> oh, speaking of uh, Google Analytics and other such tools, if you are reporting something wrong with a website because you were expecting one thing to happen, but something else happened, don't try to mess with the people in charge of the site. Because chances are they use some kind of analytical tool. Again, probably Google Analytics because it's very popular. Google Analytics actually tracks every single click that you make. So if you're trying to tell us that you clicked on, say, the Super Deluxe Espresso machine, but we ended up sending you the budget version, we can check your session with Google Analytics and see every single click that you made. And if you did indeed click on the budget version, well, guess what? That tells us that you did something wrong. I'll let you in on another secret. There are also tools out there in which not only will it track every click you make, but they also essentially do a video capture of your session. Every time you move the mouse, type something, click on an icon, that video will show that movement, that click, that typing. Uh, I will say this much. Uh, first of all, these tools will never record passwords or credit card numbers. Um, if it does a video capture of you typing in a password or credit card number, it's going to blur it or replace it with asterisks or something, basically for security and legal reasons. Also, I do have to admit that these video capture tools are rarely ever used. And if they are used, it's for a tiny fraction of a percent of users because those video tracker tools use up a lot of system resources. The sites that I work on, by the way, don't use them. But really what I'm trying to tell you is uh, don't knowingly tell us web folk that you did one thing and not another, because chances are we can prove that Yes, you did do the exact opposite of what you claim you did. One thing I have to admit, though, sometimes users might report a problem that we, I don't know, we, we developers just can't fix. If we can't fix it, it usually means one thing. We cannot reproduce that problem ourselves in order to fix it. It's hard to fix something that you can't see broken. There have been a few times over the years when we've had a small string of customers report a very specific issue that was happening to them but yet we couldn't make that issue happen to save our lives. There have even been times when uh, we'd talk directly to the customer and have the customer walk us through step by step. On the customer's end, the problem would happen, but on our end, everything would work as expected. We'd make sure we were using the exact same version of the same web browser the customer is using, same platform, that is Mac or Windows, same everything. But again, if you can't see the problem, it's hard to fix without just blindly guessing what the problem is and hope that your blind fix doesn't actually end up breaking something else. All we can do in these cases really is just apologize and uh, keep monitoring to see if more people report the same problem. If it's something critical, again, like preventing somebody from ordering something or maybe using a coupon, then of course we have to stop everything and just try like mad to fix the problem until it actually works or at the very least, put some kind of band-aid fix on it. Thankfully, these situations happen extremely rarely. Now, having said that, here's some wisdom that I want to share with you that uh, may or may not apply to you, but it just might apply to somebody. Folks, I know that there are still a few old-school web-browsing stragglers who are tempted to disable JavaScript support in their web browsers. The thing is, though, 
you should not. If you disable JavaScript, you probably won't be able to use most websites out there. Back in the 90s, when JavaScript was still in its infancy, people would use it to do some wacky things in a web browser that straight-up HTML just can't do, like put scrolling messages on the screen, or cause an alert message to pop up on the screen. Usually it was much more distracting than it ever needed to be, so a lot of folks would just tell Netscape to ignore JavaScript, don't do any JavaScript. Also, in the early days of JavaScript, not every browser would interpret JavaScript the same way. There'd be times when maybe some JavaScript code would crash on some browsers, but not others. So that meant that people who disabled JavaScript were doing it as kind of a safety precaution. Nowadays, though, that's not the case anymore. JavaScript is so standardized across browsers that a site that uses JavaScript, uh, which really, let's be honest, is pretty much every website, should behave the same on any browser on any platform unless the developer actually put in some code that would detect what browser and platform you're using and make it behave accordingly. Now, some clarification for those of you who are not familiar with the world of web development. What you see on your screen when you are on a website is the result of HTML or hypertext markup language. That's what tells the browser what text and what pictures to display. Then there's CSS or cascading style sheets. CSS tells the browser exactly how to display everything. It's essentially in charge of the layout and formatting. This JavaScript language I'm talking about is code that runs in your browser and it kind of manipulates what you see on your screen. Like I said earlier, JavaScript is what we call a client-side language, which means that it executes on the client, the client being your web browser. It doesn't execute on a remote server somewhere. Usually a website will have a server-side language behind it, sometimes PHP, which is my specialty, of course, sometimes Ruby, sometimes Perl, Sometimes Cold Fusion. Uh, yes, fellow dev nerds, Cold Fusion is still actually in use. And that server side code does some stuff on the server rather than in your browser. And honestly, the reason most websites use JavaScript is really to do as much processing as it can on your computer so it takes some of the load off the server. Basically, sites are programmed to send as much code to your browser for your browser to execute as possible and the server does as little processing as possible. That way the web server is not overloaded. One concern about JavaScript used to be that because it's executed in the web browser, somebody could just tap into the JavaScript and manipulate it to change its behavior. Well, JavaScript has come a long way in the past quarter century. Most websites that have a lot of JavaScript will run that JavaScript through a processor that will make the JavaScript code virtually unreadable and therefore not really easy to manipulate at all. It definitely makes it not worth anybody's time. And even then, there's usually some code on the server side that'll verify that it's getting the results that it's expecting. And if not, it doesn't work. Speaking of JavaScript, I remember completing the first task I ever had for my current job nearly eight years ago. It was a JavaScript bug. It was a defect in the JavaScript code. I don't remember what the problem was, but it was a fairly simple fix. I only needed to change like maybe 10 lines of code. One of the things I had to change was what we developers call a string. And for those of you who don't know what a string is, well, a string is simply just some text that's going to be outputted to the screen. A string might say something like, please enter your zip code or thank you for your order. 
And just as in written English, in code for just about every programming language, you have to surround those words with quotation marks. Well, with that bug that I first worked on, I forgot to put a closing quotation mark on the string. If you do that in JavaScript or really any language, it's a syntax error. And if that happens on your website, then your website is literally unusable. It just comes to a screeching halt. You might even get a blank screen instead of the website. Well, my unclosed quote was not caught in the code review and it got merged into the code base. Thankfully, long before the release happened, our QA department caught it. But because of versioning control systems, you can always trace code changes right back to whoever made that change. So everybody knew that it was my code that broke the site. People taunted me mercilessly for months over it. Oh, look, everybody, it's the guy who doesn't close his quotes. <laughs> well, it eventually occurred to me that the person who did my code review was the guy who was essentially our lead developer, and he was among those making fun of my little goof. So I pointed it out to him. I said, dude, you were the one who did that code review. Why did you let it through? And he said, well, um, you see, um, the way that I do code reviews is if I see that the first lines of code change are okay, I um, um, kind of assume that the rest of the code is fine. <laughs> oh, that's a tragic mistake. You gotta look through every single line in the code change. <laughs> of course, I don't understand how I was able to say, okay, this code is done, let me put it through code review. You would think that I would have caught the problem during testing, but nope. Oh, here's another tip for you. Uh, if you use a browser that's not one of the major popular ones, don't expect all websites to work properly. Most major websites support Firefox, Chrome, uh, whatever Microsoft is calling its miserable excuse for a web browser now, and versions of Safari that run on Apple devices like Macs, iPhones, iPads, etc. Uh, don't expect websites to support the Windows version of Safari because the Windows version of Safari has not had an update in probably seven or eight years. If you use Vivaldi or Opera, don't be surprised if a feature on your favorite website doesn't work as it's supposed to. Having said that, though, if you heard the previous episode of this podcast, you heard me talk about how for 13 years, my one and only computer was one of the Amiga models. Talk about using non-mainstream web browsers. So many sites wouldn't fully work using the web browsers available for the Amiga platform. But I'll tell you what, though. The Amiga was great for usability testing when I was doing website development as freelance work. If it worked on my Amiga browser, you knew it would work on anything. And while I'm at it, if you find that a website you're using isn't working the way it's supposed to, Try the same site in a different browser. You'd be surprised at how often that actually fixes your problem. But unless that site takes advantage of very specific features that are exclusive to certain browsers, then the browser shouldn't really matter, though, but still, it's worth a try. Over the years, I've seen so many advances in web programming. After I mastered PHP, I found out that I was still behind the times because now there were PHP frameworks out there. Zend, CakePHP, CodeIgniter, Symfony. And then I learned that there are JavaScript frameworks, too. AngularJS, which is a Google creation, Vue.js, Node.js, and React.js, which was created by Facebook and is currently in use by Facebook. Sometimes learning a new framework can be like learning a new programming language altogether. Thankfully, though, if you understand how one framework works, you have a good basis for learning another one pretty quickly. Now, seemingly on a totally unrelated topic, 
Recently, my wife and I were talking about how in the last few decades, kids have been pressured to just be in a constant state of learning, or attempted learning at least. They're in school seven hours a day, five days a week, and then they're expected to do more work at home with homework. Saturday morning cartoons aren't a thing anymore because now TV has to be educational thanks to legislation, the same legislation that ultimately killed the Bozo Show. So even on the damn weekends, they're forced to have education thrown at them. And summer vacation? Forget it. Now they have summer reading that schools are requiring them to do. I commented how ridiculous it all is. Everybody needs a break. After all, accountants don't come home from a hard day at work, have supper, and decide, you know what I'm going to do to relax? I'm going to do someone's taxes. A firefighter doesn't come home and set a fire so he can put it out. So why the hell should we expect students to go home and be subject to yet more of what they were just doing all freaking day? In this discussion, I almost caught myself. I came so close to saying, when I'm off the clock, do I write code? Well, the answer to that question actually is, yes, quite often I do. I'm lucky enough to have a job doing something that I really like doing, writing code. And if I'm not actually working on a website in my own time, I might be learning one of those frameworks that I mentioned. I have several ongoing website projects happening, one of which I intend to turn into an iPhone app, and hopefully also an Android app. Many of my coworkers who were on my development team when I started years ago are still with the company but have moved on to different roles. A few moved into systems architecture, a couple are now management, and a few work in infrastructure, all of which pay more. I, however, I'm still a lowly software engineer. One of my newer coworkers once asked me why I'm still a developer. I said, because that's what I want to do. And he further pressed, but why? Well, do I want to make more money, but at the sacrifice of doing what I really enjoy doing? I mean, hey, I'm able to pay the rent and take Lisa out for dinner periodically. What more do I need? It's a good feeling to build something. And doing it in software is just as satisfying as, say, woodworking, soldering. Writing code and building something that does exactly what you want to do is quite a nice feeling. If I were to find out that for the rest of my full-time employed life I'm going to be a software developer, well, I don't think I'm going to be crying in my beer. It's good work, it's fun work, and it's in-demand work. Oh, and by the way, I never again submitted a code change that did not include a closing quote mark on a string. Oh, by the way, one other thing I want to mention is uh, I mentioned passwords and password complexity before. One thing I just want to make clear is that assuming that the developers behind any website are following standards and possibly even law, your password will never be stored in a readable format. The current standard is that passwords, when they're stored in a database, they have to be hashed which is basically a way of making your password unreadable and even untranslatable. So somebody has a copy of the database table that has your password and everybody else's passwords in it. It's not going to do them a damn bit of good because you cannot dehash a password. All you can do is just guess, really. And due to certain algorithms and things that are used, even if you have the same password for two different users, they're not going to appear to be the same in that database table. They might be the exact same password, but after they're hashed, they look totally different. So if you ever hear of a intrusion or leak or anything involving 
a password file from a website, my advice is don't fret about it necessarily. I mean, if you want to change your password, go right ahead. It's not going to hurt you. But once somebody steals that password file, it's useless. It really is. And the same thing with credit card numbers. Whenever I hear of a credit card number breach, I think Target or JCPenney had one about five years ago. My first thought was, okay, that sucks, but people shouldn't be panicking. They cannot, uh, unless these stores are violating some laws, those credit card numbers aren't going to be stored in any kind of readable format. It's not going to be decipherable by anybody who stole them. They're not going to be able to be used. The only way they could be used is if they were somehow interfered with between the time, say, people swipe their cards and the time the uh, result of that swipe reached the cash register or the point-of-sale system. So yeah, credit card numbers and passwords, they're usually pretty safe. The only way they're ever compromised, really, assuming people are following proper protections, is if they get intercepted during transmission before they reach the stage of being hashed out or encrypted. Now, moving on to something totally different. Something that I've noticed in the last two or three years is that many of my favorite albums were released in 1971. And I'm thinking, man, 1971 was a great year for at least rock and roll records. And then I realized a couple of the things that I thought were released in 1971 were actually from 1970. And then it occurred to me that there were a ton of really good and maybe just plain important albums released in 1970. So uh, let me have the opportunity to talk about that. 1970 really was a landmark year for different albums. As I look at a list of albums that came out in 1970, some of the most notable ones include, but are not limited to, Chicago, their second album, and their self-titled album. It's just called Chicago, but people tend to call it Chicago too. Undoubtedly, the standout from that album is the suite called The Ballet for a Girl in Buchanan. Uh, it's not Buchanan, it's Buchanan. And uh, they misspelled it in the title, interestingly. That came out January 26th. On February 9th, there was Morrison Hotel by the Doors. It was a welcome change back to their roots and a little more bluesy than usual and uh, didn't have the strings and horns that people inexplicably didn't care for on their previous album, The Soft Parade. March 2nd saw the release of Ladies of the Canyon by Joni Mitchell. Just listen to that opening track, Morning Morgantown, and tell me you're not in for some good listening. Psychedelic Shack on March 6th, The Temptations, ooh. Deja Vu by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young on March 11th. Miles Davis's famous Bitches Brew on March 30th. The Jackson 5 had three albums in 1970. They had ABC on May 8th. Third album, very creative title, on September 8th. And the Jackson 5 Christmas album on October 15th. Two albums with barely a month passing. Isn't that something? The Grateful Dead that year had Working Man's Dead featuring the famous Casey Jones and American Beauty later on. And there is a little bit of a connection between American Beauty and Deja Vu. Lots of people know that Jerry Garcia played the pedal steel guitar on Teach Your Children on the Deja Vu album by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. What not a lot of people know is what the trade-off was. Jerry Garcia agreed to play steel guitar on the condition that Stephen Stills teach him how to arrange vocal harmony. And on American Beauty, 
the song Addicts of My Life is kind of the result of that uh, teachable moment, if you will. In the Addicts of My And of course, American Beauty has one of the greatest songs, in my opinion, ever recorded, Ripple. If my words did glow With the gold of sunshine And my tunes were played On the hall of strung Would you hear my voice Come through the music Two members of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, by the way, both Stephen Stills and Neil Young, released solo albums that year, Stephen Stills with his debut self-titled, and Neil Young with After the Gold Rush. Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar came out in September, but I don't like to give Andrew Lloyd Webber any attention, so let's consider this the end of that. But something that I did notice thematically with albums that were released in 1970 there were four common themes, if you will, that came up repeatedly. There were several first albums out that year. There were several last albums. There were several transitional albums in that, well, while it was, say, a band's last album, at the same time, in the same year, different members of said band put out other albums, either on their own or with other bands. And there were a lot of live albums as well. Let's start off with, say, the transitional albums. Of course, because I am who I am, I have to talk about the Beatles. 1970 actually saw three new Beatles albums, albeit two of them were compilations, really. On February 26th, there was Hey Jude, originally going to be called The Beatles Again. In fact, there are some copies of that album in which the title on the record label itself says The Beatles Again. But thing is, some of the suits at Apple Records said, wait a minute, this album is going to contain Hey Jude, their biggest hit single. It's a fairly recent single. Why don't we call the album Hey Jude just to draw attention to it? But the Beatles' then-manager, Alan Klein, worked out a deal between Capitol Records in America and the Beatles organization, and part of the deal was that there would be a new Beatles compilation every year, and Hey Jude fulfilled that requirement. I don't think there was a compilation album every year after that. There wasn't one in 71 or 72. But anyway, this new album, Hey Jude, or The Beatles Again, if you will, it was compiled with the intention of putting together a bunch of Beatles songs that never appeared on albums released by Capitol Records. It's kind of a strange compilation, to be sure. The cover photos are from literally the last time the Beatles were ever known to be photographed together yet there are some songs from as early as 1964 on that album, specifically Can't Buy Me Love and I Should Have Known Better, neither of which had ever appeared on an album on Capitol Records before. The album also included both sides of the 1966 single Paperback Rider in Rain, in addition to the two sides of the 1968 single Hey Jude and Revolution, plus the A side of Lady Madonna from earlier in 1968. One selling point for this album was that every song was mixed in true stereo. Many of the songs were previously only available in mono. I do find it strange that the album wasn't made a bit more contemporary by including, say, The Inner Light, which is the B-side of Lady Madonna, 
or You Know My Name, Look Up the Number, the B-side of the Let It Be single that would be released just days after the album came out. I'd like to think that this album could have also included the single mixes of Let It Be and Get Back, but of course that probably wouldn't have made sense given that on May 8th, both of those songs, albeit uh, different versions, would be released on what is considered the final album of new material released by the band, and that album was called Let It Be. Now, having said that, let's see if I can briefly explain what Let It Be was all about. After the Beatles completed their self-titled album in 1968, sometimes called the White Album, they decided that for their next album, instead of doing what they did in the past couple of years, using a lot of overdubs, special effects, backwards tapes, things like that, they were going to go back to their roots and just record raw rock and roll music. And because they were going back to their roots, the project would be called Get Back. To go along with the project would be a made-for-TV documentary of the same name. The purpose of that documentary was to show the Beatles rehearsing and recording the new album, culminating in a public performance. And of course, that public performance was the famous rooftop concert of January 30th, 1969. And here's a fun fact for you that I'll bet many of you didn't know. The Beatles were not the first famous rock and roll band to play a concert on the roof of a building in a busy downtown. I think it was eight weeks prior, the Jefferson Airplane did a rooftop concert in New York City. I know on YouTube there's a video of the performance of The House at Puneal Corner from that rooftop concert. I'll put a link to that in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. But throughout January of 1969, the Beatles were filmed, rehearsing, and recording the album. The first half of January, they were at the Twickenham Film Studio, or is it Twickenham <laughs> Film Studio, where many movies were shot, including their previous two live-action movies, Help and A Hard Day's Night, I believe. They started rehearsing for the album in that film studio, but uh, things weren't all that great for the Beatles. For one thing, they were inside a cold, empty film studio as opposed to a recording studio. Also, they had to follow the film crew's 9-to-5 schedule, which they weren't used to. They didn't work that early in the morning. There were existing tensions in the band, too, and that environment just made things worse. It got so bad that at one point during rehearsal on January 10th, George Harrison actually announced that he was leaving the band effective immediately. The rest of the Beatles, eh, they soon learned that they really needed George. They tried carrying on, but they're like, no, we gotta have George. So they tried to get him back, and he agreed to come back, provided certain demands be met. For example, no more filming and rehearsing at Twickenham. Also, the film crew would have to adjust to the Beatles' schedule. And uh, basically, they all agreed to the terms of George's return, and so he came back. And uh, by the time he came back, the Beatles had moved over to Apple Studios, their new recording studio, to actually record the album. The Beatles handed over the tapes for the album to a producer named Glenn Johns, who twice attempted to put together a releasable album, or at least something that has some kind of flow to it, but the Beatles rejected both of the attempts. Meanwhile, the Beatles were about to record another album, so those raw tapes were kind of forgotten about, except for, I think, the songs Get Back and Let It Be, which were released as singles. 
So the Beatles record Abbey Road, and meanwhile, they get a phone call from the Suits at United Artists. Back in 1963, the Beatles signed an agreement with United Artists to film three motion pictures. At this point, the Beatles had done three motion pictures for United Artists, A Hard Day's Night in 1964, Help in 1965, and Yellow Submarine in 1968. However, there was a little problem. United Artists thought about it, and they said, you know what, guys? Yellow Submarine doesn't count, because even though the Beatles are the stars of the movie, the actual Beatles themselves are only in it for the last few minutes, so we need another movie from you. So what do the Beatles do? They decided to take that made-for-TV documentary of the rehearsing and the recording of the Get Back album, turn it into a feature-length motion picture, and there, that would fulfill their movie deal with United Artists. And, of course, because there was now a Beatles movie coming out, a corresponding album had to go with it. The problem was, the Get Back album wasn't recorded like all the other Beatles albums. The sessions weren't dedicated to a particular song. There weren't really take numbers mentioned. The songs that were recorded were kind of random and all over the tape vaults, which is one reason the album hadn't yet come out. If I'm not mistaken, it was John Lennon who brought in Phil Spector and handed him the tapes and said, here, see if you can put together a cohesive album from this. The movie and the album would now be called Let It Be instead of Get Back. During the production of the Let It Be album, the Beatles got notification that the final cut of the movie included scenes of the Beatles rehearsing two songs that the Beatles never actually recorded on tape, Across the Universe and I, Me, Mine. Well, it turns out that the Beatles did actually record a version of Across the Universe in 1968. God knows why they spent so much time rehearsing it in 1969 since they already recorded it. So, no problem. They handed Across the Universe over to Phil Spector and said, here, put this on the album. I mean, mine, however, there were no tapes in existence of the Beatles recording that song. It was just a filmed rehearsal. Oh, and here's another problem. Uh, the Beatles had actually broken up by now, effective September 1969 with John Lennon's departure. So guess what? In 1970, the Beatles actually had to reunite to record a new version of I Me Mine to include on the album. So George Harrison, Ringo Starr, and Paul McCartney got back together to record I Me Mine. Where was John Lennon? Well, the story was that he was away on vacation with his wife Yoko and therefore wasn't available to participate. You all will have read that uh, Dave D's no longer with us, but Mickey and Titch and I just like to carry on the good work that's always gone down in number two. So anyway, they record I Me Mine, send that to Spectre so all the songs are ready to go. Although, during the production, Spectre kind of violated the original premise of the album, which was to just have the Beatles just themselves, no overdubs, well, except for Billy Preston, who played keyboards on some of the songs. But no overdubs, nothing fancy, that's it. Warts and all, as they said. The Much to Paul McCartney's chagrin, Spectre went ahead and overdubbed strings, horns, and choirs on various songs. The wild and windy night that rain washed away. 
nonetheless, the album was released on May 8th, despite a major issue of contention. Oh, what now, Beatles, what now? Well, starting in December of 1969, Paul McCartney had started working on his debut solo album, and he planned to release it on April 17th, 1970. However, the other Beatles asked him to delay the release because there were other albums on the Apple Records label that were going to be released on and near that date, including Let It Be. But nope, he refused to change his release date. On the McCartney album, he played every instrument himself. Drums, keyboards, bass, you name it. If you hear it, he played it. He sang most of the vocals, too, with his wife Linda adding a harmony here and there. If you've never heard McCartney, um, well, it's kind of a strange album. It's really weird. There are only a few actual start-to-finish songs, like Every Night, Junk, and Teddy Boy. And, of course, Maybe I'm Amazed, which inexplicably was not released as a single. Good lord, that song easily would have been a number one hit. Most of the rest of the songs were either instrumentals or just short fragments that may or may not have just been half a verse repeated a few times. That would be something Really would be something Beach in the falling rain, mama Beach in the falling rain Despite the strange vibe of the album, it was a massive seller and went to number one on the Billboard 200. The most likely explanation for its success was, well, this album came out really shortly after Paul McCartney announced via a self-written press release that the Beatles had broken up and would not be getting back together ever again. So Beatles fans would probably just fork over money for anything Beatles they could get at that point. And despite his ex-bandmate's concern that the album would interfere with Let It Be, Let It Be also sold well and went to number one. And McCartney wasn't the only ex-Beatle to make his solo album debut. Ringo Starr had released the album Sentimental Journey on March 27th. Sentimental Journey was an album of standards, including Night and Day, Bye Bye Blackbird, and Love is a Many Splendored Thing. Yep, that's right, folks. Rod Stewart was not the first rock and roller to do an album of standards. Have I told you lately that I love you? Ringo chose the songs based on the standards that his mother loved, so he basically recorded this album for her. He talked about doing an album on his own back in 1969, and the rest of the Beatles were very supportive of that idea, and they encouraged him to do one. In fact, Paul McCartney actually went so far as to help him out arranging Stardust. And for what it was, and that it was Ringo, the album performed surprisingly well, peaking at number 22 on the Billboard 200. Later that year, September 25th, Ringo would release another theme album, Boku of Blues, or is it Boku's of... Okay, my French teacher would say it's Boku of Blues, or maybe it is Boku's of Blues because the S is followed by a vowel, so I, I don't know, I don't know. Anybody who speaks French better than me, please tell me, would this be Boku of Blues or Boku's of Blues? But anyway, that album was all country tunes, and Ringo recorded it in Nashville, but it didn't do quite as well as Sentimental Journey, only hitting number 65 on the Billboard chart. What about the other two Beatles? Well, John Lennon and George Harrison actually had already released solo albums by this time, but to be fair, they weren't exactly mainstream. And technically, the John Lennon albums weren't solo albums, they were credited to him and Yoko, and they were, well, much weirder than the McCartney album. There were two albums called Unfinished Music. There was Unfinished Music number one, Two Virgins. That's the album which uh, John and Yoko famously posed uh, without clothes on. 
And there was unfinished music number two, Life with the Lions, partially recorded while Yoko was in the hospital, recovering from a miscarriage. And there was the wedding album after that. Now, those three albums, they contained essentially psychedelic collages, not too dissimilar from what John Lennon did with George Harrison and Yoko Ono with Revolution 9 on the White Album. George Harrison had his share of projects, too, including the soundtrack of the movie Wonderwall and an experimental album called Electronic Sounds. But both Lennon and Harrison arguably made their mainstream debuts in 1970. November 27th saw the release of George Harrison's triple album All Things Must Pass, which is generally considered the best of his post-Beatles projects, and it's often considered the best solo Beatles album, period. For what it's worth, the album went to number one, and George explained that the reason the album had so much content in it is that he had a huge backlog of music he couldn't include on the Beatles albums because of the stranglehold that the Lennon-McCartney partnership had on the group's output. Fun fact, by the way, the Beatles actually rehearsed several songs that George would release on All Things Must Pass, including the album's title track, Hear Me Lord and Let It Down. The third record consisted essentially of a bunch of jam sessions, with titles such as I Remember Jeep and Thanks for the Pepperoni. John Lennon's mainstream solo debut was released on December 11th, and it was called Plastic Ono Band, and actually Yoko Ono also released a solo album called Plastic Ono Band on the same day. Both had the exact same cover photo, except that John and Yoko were in different positions on each of their respective photos. John and Yoko recorded their albums after going through primal scream therapy to help them deal with long-time issues. Both albums, John's and Yoko's, have really strong performances by the band, which consisted of Ringo Starr on drums, uh, John on guitar, Klaus Foreman on bass, and I think there were a few more musicians on Yoko's album. As for the John Lennon Plastic Ono Band album, it's definitely recorded by a man who has issues starting with doom and gloom funeral bells that introduce the song Mother, in which John tries to come to terms with how his mother was hardly there for him as a kid, and just as they were starting to rebuild their relationship, she was killed by a drunk driver, and he never knew his father, who totally abandoned his family, only to reappear suddenly when John got famous. Gee, I wonder why he'd feel bitter about that. And the album ends with a song called My Mummy's Dead. Good lord, Mother and My Mummy's Dead. That's a hell of a way to bookend an album. One of the more gut-wrenching songs, God, is mainly Lennon singing a litany of things he claims he doesn't believe in, yet at the same time many of them were a big part of his life at some point. Bob Dylan, Elvis Presley, the I Ching, or I Ching as he said, and at one point John sings, I don't believe in Beatles. I don't believe in Beatles. Then the song comes to a halt. Now, Lennon never liked his singing voice, so he would always have reverb or some other effect added to his vocals, just so his voice would sound a little bit more palatable to his own ears. But the next line he sings, I just believe in me. I just believe in me. Raw. No reverb, no effect, no nothing. He tells the listener, the dream is over. And so, dear friends, you just have to carry on. The way I see it, he's telling his audience, folks, the Beatles are gone. You're going to have to deal with it. That gut-wrenching truth must have really, really made a lot of fans 
just feel a lot of pain. <laughs> but the album did peak at number six on the Billboard 200. And I only recently learned that Lennon's next album, Imagine, from 1971, was basically John's attempt to do another version of the Plastic Ono Band album, but make it more commercial, because he felt that Plastic Ono Band was a little bit too personal for it to be accessible by a lot of people. Just as an example, the song Imagine, according to Lennon, was a rewrite of God. Oh, by the way, I have to brag about something here. There's a song on Plastic Ono Band called Love. Well, let me tell you what happened several years ago. The Old Town School folk music. I talked about them before. It's probably my favorite place in Chicago. Well, the Old Town School acquired an acoustic guitar once owned by John Lennon. They got it from the Peace Museum in Chicago after the Peace Museum closed down, and along with the guitar was a letter from Yoko Ono. And in the letter, she mentions that she thinks John used that guitar to write love. Well... There's a certain schnook who records podcasts who actually got to play that guitar once, the day after his birthday in 2013. And the really cool thing to verify that it was definitely John's guitar, somebody actually went to Google and searched every John Lennon picture they could find until they found a picture of him holding it. He was playing it in a TV appearance, I think in 1972, and the giveaway was there's a certain feature on the Mother of Pearl pattern on the pick guard that they were able to match up to get a positive ID. Oh, by the way, um, backtracking a little bit here, you may have noticed that I said the Beatles released three new albums in 1970, but I've only talked about two of them. Well, the third one was the Beatles' Christmas album. I know I talked about it in a prior episode, but here's a brief rundown. Every year, starting in 1963, the Beatles would send out flexi-discs. Uh, that is a record that's really just a flimsy piece of plastic, the kind they would insert in magazines now and then. And those flexi-discs would have messages or music or something for fan club members every Christmas. The 1970 Christmas album was a compilation of all of those Christmas records that the Beatles did, and the album was only released to fan club members as sort of a farewell present. And it was especially a welcome gift for American fan club members because Americans didn't actually receive all the fan club recordings from the years past. Because of issues with overseas shipments, the fan club wasn't always able to get the records out to American fans. Another one of my favorite bands had kind of a transition in 1970, and that'd be the Monkees. By the end of 1968, Peter Tork bought out his Monkees contract and left the group. So in 1969, the Monkees released two albums as a trio, Instant Replay and The Monkees Present. Interestingly, though, because there were some archival recordings from 1966 used on Instant Replay, that album actually does include all four of the Monkees. Mike Nesmith similarly arranged to leave the Monkees in 1970, although he was still contractually obligated to make TV appearances, hence his inclusion in the commercials that the Monkees did for Kool-Aid in 1970. Nobody here but us Monkees. <laughs> so let's make some friends. Hey, let's make some Kool-Aid. But outside of television, the Monkees now only consisted of Davy Jones and Mickey Dolenz. They released the Changes album in June. If you look at the Monkees' album covers chronologically, it's just sad how you can literally watch the group just fall apart. The Changes album cover is really telling. Jones and Dolans are facing away from each other, which actually was a coincidence because that picture is a still taken from the group's appearance as a trio on the Joey Bishop Show. You would not believe how hard it is to say the Joey Bishop Show 
Anyway, uh, if you look at the album cover, you'll see that there's a shadow over Davy Jones's head. That shadow was cast by the headstock of Mike Nesmith's guitar. As for the actual album changes, well, Davy Jones didn't like it. He said he didn't have good memories of recording it. Mickey Dolenz, on the other hand, he was happy just to have an opportunity to record something. Maybe it helps that it included his own song, Midnight Train. I think it was Davy who said that Changes is really an Andy Kim album produced by Jeff Berry. Having said that, though, in my opinion, Changes isn't really a bad album. Well, okay, I'll put it to you this way. It wouldn't be bad if it didn't have the monkey's name attached to it. It's terrible as a monkey's album. But for a more bubblegum kind of act, it would be fine. And you don't need to be told that friggin' Jeff Berry produced the album. You can tell by listening. And it certainly doesn't have the feel of their more creative albums between 1967's Headquarters and 1969's The Monkees Present. It does have something in common with The Monkees' first two albums in that Davey and Mickey don't actually play any instruments, but it doesn't even match the quality of their first two albums at all. Also, Changes was recorded in New York City, which... New York City! Just doesn't work with this Hollywood-based act. And yeah, I know they did record in New York City before, but not entire albums. For what it's worth, the album only reached number 152 on the Billboard 200. Oh, by the way, that was in 1986 when the album was reissued during the 20th anniversary resurgence of Monkey Mania. When the album first came out in 1970, it didn't chart at all. And that 1986 reissue, by the way, was mastered from an old vinyl copy of the record itself because uh, the original master tapes couldn't be located. No big loss, if you ask me. And yeah, I know, technically it wasn't the Monkees' last album because in 1987, three of them got together to record Pool It, and in 1996, the four of them recorded Just Us, and then there was Good Times in uh, 2000... Oh, what year was Good Times? I don't remember. And 2018, shortly before Peter Tork's death, there was their Christmas album. But anyway, going back to 1970... While Mike Nesmith was busy not appearing on the Changes album, he was busy with his new band, the First National Band, whose debut album Magnetic South would be released also in June. Me and my calico girlfriend Starting a set of new rooms. Several of the tracks on the album, including Calico Girlfriend, Nine Times Blue, and Little Red Rider, had versions that were recorded previously on the Monkey's Dime but the versions on Mike's debut are definitely more polished. Now, I am not a country music fan at all, but Nesmith's dive into the country rock genre works really well. There are some killer tracks on Magnetic South. As good as the music is, though, it couldn't push the album higher than number 143 on the Billboard 200, although the single Joanne went to number 21 on the Hot 100 and number 6 on the AC chart. Again, there is some great stuff on Magnetic South. The problem is, though, the album overall doesn't sound good. The first time I heard it, it was when my friend Sibley asked me if I could make CDs of some old vinyl of his, and I said sure. He handed me a stack of almost the entire Michael Nesmith Post Monkeys discography. I'd never heard his Post Monkeys stuff before, but I really liked what I heard when I dropped the stylus on Magnetic South. But it sounded like the record had been played thousands of times. There was no life to it, no dynamics, no EQ. 
When the album eventually did come out on CD, I bought it, but didn't sound any better. I found out later that there were some issues in the original mixing and mastering of the album, so the poor sound quality just reflects that. It's a shame, though, because proper equalization would breathe mind-blowing life into these great songs. Thankfully, though, that was no longer the issue with First National Band's second album, Loose Salute, which came out in November, and, well, still only peaked at number 159, but the sound quality was a heck of a lot better. Another artist who transitioned from band breakup to solo career? Tommy James, as in Tommy James and the Shondells. Their final album, Travelin', was released in March. Now, I'd always thought that Crimson and Clover was actually their last album, but I found out while researching this episode that they actually had two more. As with the previous records, Travelin' was released on the mob-owned Roulette Records. I don't believe it had any radio hits on the album, but Tommy James's self-titled album released that same year also didn't have any radio hits. But his next album, 1971's Christian of the World, would have the hit Dragon the Line. Now, that's it for group-to-solo transitions that I wanted to talk about, but there is an interesting, yet disturbing, connection between two different artists who had albums released in 1970, both firsts in their own ways. The Beach Boys, after having some problems with Capitol Records, left Capitol and signed up with Reprise Records, a division of Warner Brothers, with little help from their friend Van Dyke Parks, with whom Brian Wilson collaborated on the famous unfinished album Smile. One of the conditions of the contract, by the way, was that the Beach Boys would be required to submit a finished version of Smile by 1973 under the threat of a $50,000 fine. Well, I'm just going to spoil it for you now and tell you that in 1973, the Beach Boys ended up forking over $50,000 to Warner Brothers. But anyway, their first album for reprise, Sunflower, came out on August 31st, 1970. Nowadays, if you ask any Beach Boys fan, what's your favorite Beach Boys album besides Pet Sounds? Sunflower will be the answer, or at least it'll be in the top five. The Sunflower album is jam-packed with some great new sounds, but with the classic multi-part vocal harmony that everybody knew from the Beach Boys. It wasn't only their first album under a brand new contract, but it was also the first album they recorded on 16-track tape, and the songwriting was absolutely solid for the most part. As could be expected on most Beach Boys albums, there are some classic Brian Wilson moments. He's all over the place on Sunflower. But also, so is his middle brother Dennis. Dennis was all over the place. He had a lot of songs on the album, songs that he wrote, songs that he sang... In fact, his song Slip On Through kicks off the album. One of his most beloved fan favorites, Forever, graces the album. Uh, by the way, if you know the song Forever, but only because of Jesse and the Rippers, you need some serious deprogramming, my friend. If every In fact, 
One of the reasons so many fans love Sunflower is that there are significant contributions from all six of the Beach Boys. It was truly a group effort, and arguably the only true group effort in the band's entire studio catalog. The album, however, didn't chart so hot, at least not here in the States. It only peaked at number 151 on the Billboard 200, despite the strong material. The album did reach number 29 in the UK and 10 in the Netherlands, though, so somebody liked it. The problem, I think, is that the Beach Boys were never topical, at least up to that point. Despite the album being released during the Vietnam War and not even four months after the Kent State University massacre, there wasn't a single word in the lyrics addressing the turmoil that the world was going through. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young had Ohio. Sly and the Family Stone had a ton of songs about the issues. The Temptations were at it. The Beatles were at it. The Beach Boys, though, and Sunflower? Um, there was a song literally about drinking a glass of water. Yeah. Um, in an ocean or in a glass Cool water is such a gas Beach Boy Bruce Johnston once told the story about how a DJ friend of his told him, Man, Bruce, I really love your new album, Sunflower. And Bruce said to him, Well, why don't you ever play it on the radio? And his friend said, Tell you the truth, Bruce, if I did, I'd be laughed out of the business. Now, let's go back to Dennis Wilson, the group's drummer, although I think that during that time he was playing on keyboards. He may, that may have been after he uh, severely injured his hand. But he was the group's drummer for all practical purposes and their sex symbol. He never had a hard time getting a girl, ever. But there was another album that was released in March of 1970 that certainly would not have made Dennis feel good. That album was called Lie, The Love and Terror Cult. Who was the performer? Dennis Wilson's former friend, Charlie Manson. Yep, that Charles Manson. Friends, let me tell you, the Beach Boys have a lot of dark and disturbing things in their history, and involvement with Charles Manson was one such thing. If I'm getting the story right, Dennis, who was always a player, was giving a girl a ride home. She told him that he should meet her friend Charlie, and uh, he did. And Dennis was fascinated by the things Charlie was saying, his ideas. And, uh, oh, and there was another ulterior motive. Uh, Manson happened to want a recording contract, and the Beach Boys, the previous year, had formed their own record label, Brother Records. So, Brian and Carl Wilson produced a session with Manson. Afterwards, Manson was told to work with Terry Melcher about getting a contract. And, uh, by the way, at one point, the Beach Boys actually recorded and released a version of one of Manson's songs, Cease to Exist. Cease to exist Just come and say you love me Old Charlie told Dennis to make any changes he wanted to the music, but leave the lyrics intact exactly as is. Well, it turns out that Dennis did make a couple of lyrical changes. For one thing, he changed the opening phrase of the song, Cease to Exist, to Cease to Resist. And then he renamed the song Never Learn Not to Love. Now, Manson had surrendered his songwriting credit in exchange for an undisclosed amount of cash and a motorcycle, so Dennis's name was the only one in the credits. Meanwhile, Terry Melcher listened to the Manson session that the Wilson brothers produced, but he didn't feel there was anything good enough to release, really, so he turned Manson down. And then Manson heard Never Learn Not to Love, and he was livid with what he heard. The story that I heard is that upon hearing Never Learn Not to Love, 
Manson went over to Dennis's house and knocked on the door, but a friend answered the door and said Dennis was out. So Manson pulled out a revolver, took a bullet out of it, and handed it to the friend and said, when Dennis gets back, tell him this is for him. Oh, and you know those Tate LaBianca murders? They were meant to be a warning for Terry Melcher. The house where the Sharon Tate murders happened was rented by Terry Melcher. Now, Dennis Wilson's substance abuse problems were legendary. Try as he did many times, he could not kick his alcohol addiction. Most people who knew him well blamed his self-destructive habits on his fear of Charles Manson. Yeah, Manson was behind bars, but members of his so-called family were still on the outside and could theoretically off him at any time. He was so scared of Manson that he refused to testify in the trial out of fear of retribution. Now, as for the lie album itself, it is not the recordings produced by Brian and Carl Wilson, but instead they were essentially home demos by Manson and the family. And as crazy as it is to say so, some of the songs are actually pretty good. In fact, Steve Desper, who engineered the session that Brian and Carl produced, said that Manson definitely had talent. Among the songs that were on Lie, by the way, Look at Your Game Girl, covered in 1993 by Guns N' Roses, and the rather ironically titled Don't Do Anything Illegal, and of course Cease to Exist. Those are actually pretty, pretty good songs. And then there was Garbage Dump. It's a weird song, but it's a fun sing-along. But having said that, friends, some of the other songs range from bizarre to just plain creepy. And by the way, regarding the session that Brian and Carl produced, Longtime Beach Boys historian Andrew Doe lists on his website all the unreleased projects that any Beach Boys worked on, either as a group or as individuals, and he also notes the likelihood that recordings from each project could be released someday. And the entry for the Manson session, the possibility of release is, and I quote, not a hope in hell. Now, Lie was Charles Manson's first and last album. And Manson wasn't the only performer whose first album released in 1970 was also his last one. Another band that released its one and only album in 1970, Derek and the Dominoes, with Layla and other assorted love songs. It's just a shame that really the only song that gets attention is the title-ish track, Layla. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a great song, but there's so much else to be heard on this two-record set. So good. And I'm, I'm going to be totally honest, folks. I apologize for having to admit this, but every single time I hear that last section of Layla, I can't help but see the trash compactor scene from Goodfellas in my mind. Jimi Hendrix's Band of Gypsies album, his one and only solo album during his lifetime. That's right, Are You Experienced, Axis Bold is Love, and Electric Ladyland, those were all by the Jimi Hendrix experience. Band of Gypsies was a concert album released on March 25th, sourced from a couple of New Year's Day gigs at the Fillmore East. Which brings me to this. 1970 was a great year for concert albums. Another concert album from that year, one in which you can actually hear Jimmy, by the way, was Woodstock, music from the original soundtrack and more, released on May 11th. Good God, that's a fantastic sampler of what went on that weekend in 1969. Three records of highlights. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Jimmy, Richie Havens, Sly and the Family Stone, John Sebastian, Joan Baez, Ten Years After, Joe Cocker. Oh, by the way, speaking of Joe Cocker, the double album Mad Dogs and Englishmen, released in August. If anybody can name a single Joe Cocker album, it's Mad Dogs and Englishmen. 
That album has live versions of some of his most famous covers. She came in through the bathroom window, feeling alright, the letter. Interestingly though, not with a little help from my friends. The Who had Live at Leeds, released on May 16th. And I know of many people who claim that Live at Leeds is the greatest concert album ever released. Uh, gonna be honest, I don't really like it that much. I really don't, and I love The Who. The original album only had a small handful of songs, mainly because they had these big jams in the middle of them, so the record could only handle like three or four songs. Even the expanded version that's out now that has the entire concert. I don't know, It's the sound quality isn't all that great, the performances aren't the best. I, I don't know why people love it so much. I, I really don't know. And the Rolling Stones had Get Your Yayas Out, released September 4th, and that was put together from a couple of concerts that the band did in November 1969 at Madison Square Garden. And the wide belief is that Get Your Yayas Out was released in response to a bootleg that had been going around for a while called Liver Than You'll Ever Be. Even the Birds had an album in 1970, the Mr. Tambourine Man group, except, well, by this time, the only person who appeared on their big hits that was still in the group was Roger McGuinn. Their album was called Untitled literally accidentally when somebody, uh, took the untitled notification literally. <laughs> it was a double album, and one of the two records was a live set. And I'm going to say right now, I do not like that version of Mr. Tambourine Man that's on it. It just sounds all kinds of wrong. What I do love from Untitled, though, Chestnut Mare, probably my favorite Birds song. Really, really great tune. <laughs> There's one performer who put out both his first and his last album in 1970, but they were actually separate albums, and I'm talking about Sid Barrett, one of the founding members of Pink Floyd. In fact, I think he was actually pretty much the Pink Floyd guy when they first got together. I always say that Pink Floyd is an overrated band, and that their only really good album was their first album, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, and by gum, I stand by that assertion. I think Dark Side of the Moon is probably the second most overrated album of all time, second only to Led Zeppelin's fourth album. And The Wall, I don't, I don't know, I just don't like what Roger Waters did to the band after they kicked out Sid. And having said that, I think they did the right thing by kicking Sid Barrett out. He was uncontrollable, he was unpredictable, and he was constantly under the influence of hallucinogens. He was very difficult to deal with, and his music, well... <laughs> If you listen to the Piper at the Gates of Dawn, you hear some pretty intense innovations, some exciting psychedelia, the sounds of a genius, and of course there's that fine line between genius and madness, and the madness started to show through on the one or two tracks that he contributed to their next album, A Saucer Full of Secrets. But Sid Barrett did manage to record two solo albums. The first one was The Madcap Laughs, which was released on January 3rd, 1970. And what can I say when listening to that other than The Madcap Laughs was definitely recorded by somebody who had some weird stuff going on in his mind. When I live, I die. They even see me under cold. 
music sounds almost random, like he's just kind of improvising it, but he did multiple takes. And what's interesting is on the bonus tracks on the later issues, he's having coherent conversations with his producers, David Gilmore being one of them, I believe. His next album, Barrett, would be his last album of new material that he recorded before he basically completely withdrew. That was released on November 14th. I gotta say, I actually like that one a lot. It still has a little bit of weirdness to it, but it's got a great blues sound to it. The musicianship is really good on it. I highly recommend giving it a listen. And while we're still talking about lasts, one other group I want to talk about, not really a group, but a duo, Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water, released January 26th, a number one seller for the duo's last album of new material, Uh, That is, unless you count Paul Simon's album Hearts and Bones, which was supposed to be a Simon and Garfunkel project until Paul Simon wiped out all of Art Garfunkel's vocals. Come to think of it, you might also consider not counting not one, not two, but four of Art Garfunkel's solo albums on which Paul Simon provided guitar and background vocals. Now, I love Simon and Garfunkel, but I'm not a big fan of the Bridge Over Troubled Water album. I only really like the title track and The Only Living Boy in New York. In fact, The Only Living Boy in New York is my favorite Simon and Garfunkel song. I was lucky enough to see them in concert in 2003 in Atlantic City. The weird thing is I honestly do not remember them doing The Only Living Boy in New York, but published set lists show that they did do that song. Why wouldn't I remember them doing my favorite song of theirs? But with the release of Bridge Over Troubled Water, there weren't any immediate solo transitions. Paul Simon, who already released a solo album in 1965, wouldn't have another album until his January 1972 self-titled solo album. And Art Garfunkel's first solo album, Angel Clare, wouldn't be released until September 1973. There are some other important firsts. For example, Black Sabbath's first album came out February 13th. I'm not a big Ozzy Osbourne fan, so I don't really have a lot of Black Sabbath in my collection. And in fact, really the only Black Sabbath song that I like is War Pigs, which is actually on their second album, Paranoid, which also came out in 1970 on September 18th. But I do remember reading in Ozzy's autobiography about how the band was just blown away when they heard the finished product. Black Sabbath was just really part of that English blues explosion that happened in the late 60s, and they were called Earth at the time. But because nobody could understand them when they said Earth through their Birmingham accents, they renamed themselves to Black Sabbath. And the whole reason they took on this whole, like, I don't know, satanic kind of theme was just that, just a theme, just to set them apart from all the other British bluesy hard rock bands out there. He said, none of us believed in that stuff, but we figured we better make ourselves stand out if people are going to notice us. And it worked. It worked. Super Tramp's first album came out on July 14th. I'm going to say right out that I do not like Super Tramp. I just, it just sounds, their, their music is so dated. And I just don't like the sound of Roger Hodgson's voice on so many of their songs. Take a look at my goofing. No. Having said that, though, I love their self-titled debut. It is fantastic. It's a little bit more prog rocky. Prog rocky? Hmm. That'd make an interesting movie, wouldn't it? (laughs) Anyway, there's some great musicianship on it. So good. So good. A little bit psychedelic now and then. 
highly recommend it if you haven't heard it. If you're only familiar with Supertramp's late 70s stuff, like Breakfast in America, you gotta listen to their debut album. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer also made their debut November 20th, and uh, I'm not an Emerson, Lake, and Palmer fan either, but again, I love their first album. My brother is a big fan of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Asia, yes, uh, Emerson, Lake, and Powell. <laughs> Basically, all those bands that have like extended swirly keyboard solos that go on for several minutes. I don't like that stuff. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's first album is very light on that and just more heavy. I think it's more jazzy than anything else, really. And the song that I like least on it, Lucky Man. I mean, it's, I guess because it just sticks out. It's just too folky in terms of the rest of the album. But man, Take a Pebble. I love Take a Pebble. Very good song. Great second track. Carol King had her first solo album, Writer. Now, somebody recommended that I listen to Writer, telling me that it's even better than Tapestry. I totally disagree. Um, to me, Writer sounds very unpolished, and it sounds like nothing but a bunch of demos. The band is not very tight, and it just seems like there could have been more work put into it. But I do adore Tapestry very much. Mind you, what you just heard me talk about, they weren't the only things that came out in 1970 that many people will agree are very important. For example, Elton John had two solo albums in 1970, neither of which, by the way, was his debut solo album. Santana put out Abraxas, such a great album. You heard me talk about my love for Abraxas on a previous episode, assuming that uh, you heard that episode at least. Creedence Clearwater Revival had Cosmos Factory, and I'm sure there are others that I'm not thinking of right now, but hey, I want to keep my podcast down to a listenable length. Then again, maybe I could go on, given that it's a essentially monthly podcast, but hey, my voice is getting a little bit too tired, and I'd rather save it for next year when I talk about 1971. It's a really weird dichotomy 1970 was in terms of music. Many established acts broke up, and many that weren't established yet started up. Sometimes there was a transition between the two, but it's just fascinating, and, and that this happened 50 years ago, I figured now would be a great time to talk about that. Do you have any thoughts about uh, stuff that came out in 1970? Maybe I missed something, or you disagree or highly agree? Let me know. My email address is autobio at schnookpodcast.com. And in fact, hey, reach out to me if you have any questions, concerns, comments, whatever. I'm on the social media as well. There is a autobiography of a schnook presence on both me, we, and Facebook. And the Twitter handle is schnookpodcast. And that's also the Instagram handle. And I really don't use Instagram that much. And I apologize for not doing that. The show notes or online bibliography is located at schnookpodcast.com. Now, even though lately I've been doing just one episode a month, I'm going to try to get three more episodes out this year, mainly because I have so far three topics I really, really want to talk about before the year is up. So keep watching your podcatchers, catchers, um, pod, whatever you call those things that let you listen to podcasts. By the way, uh, this podcast is also available on the Amazon, was it music? Amazon music. <laughs> and uh, if there are any podcast providers that you like to use, but this one does not show up on, let me know. Let me know. As usual, I thank Lisa for her 
moral and amoral support. And uh, thank you to uh, my friend Ferg, who uh, helped clarify a few things with that music segment. I appreciate that, Ferg. And uh, one of these days, I'll help you out with your podcast if you're having some trouble. Music and sounds used in this episode are the properties of their individual copyright holders, and they are used for purposes of commentary and or review. No infringement is intended. Kool-Aid is a registered trademark of Kraft Heinz. And as I always like to tell you folks, the good goes around. And I usually have another line to explain why I feel that way, but today I don't. I promise I'll try harder next time. All the best, my friends. There are places I'll remember all my life. Though some have changed, some forever, not for better. Some have gone and some remain. All these places have their moments. With lovers and friends, I still can recall. Some are dead, and some are living. In my life, I've loved them all.